Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. My name is Trevor Bohm and I will be your host. Every week or so, I try to get myself a fascinating human on the mic for you, someone who looks at the civilized world just like you do and says no thank you. Someone who wants to break some rules, to lead, and to bring their unique vision into the world. Someone for whom the status quo simply will not do. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Please dive in. Hey folks, welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is Trevor Boehm, your host. And today's call is one that I have been waiting for for some time. Before we dive into that, if you are a new listener, welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Trevor Bohm. As I said, I run the Uncivilized Nation. I'm the author of the book, Man Uncivilized. I love talking to men. I love talking about men, but I also love just talking about things that are outside of the current culture. I love talking to people who've lived interesting lives, who've done weird shit, people who are thinking outside of the box and living outside of the box. And today's guest is no exception. I actually got up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm here in Hawaii to record him. He was in the Canary Islands. And this is my brother, Arjuna Dharmadas. And Arjuna, he and his wife, Arpita, are the, were the owners of the ashram that I lived in when I did my 28 days in the dark. So if you've seen my TED Talk or if you heard any of my other talks about that experience, this is the man who owned the ashram. And so his life is very unconventional. His life is dedicated to something other than what most people are walking around giving a shit about. So he's a spiritual teacher. He's a meditator. He's a yoga instructor in the real sense of the word, not in the, you know, I stand in front of 24-hour fitness and teach a one night or one hour a night yoga class. Like this is a guy that's deeply ingrained in scriptures and teachings from all walks of the spiritual path. And so I wanted him to come in today and talk specifically about walking the path. Also about like, what's it like to, to start and run and own an ashram, right? How does some guy go from being a German to kind of a backpacker to saying, hey, what if I ran my own facility and I did it in a relationship? So this is a really wonderful conversation. I said, I love this man. He's had a huge impact on me. And his teaching is so grounded. We get into how do you avoid landing in a cult, right? We get into, as a teacher, how do you, be, how do you avoid thinking that you know it all? Uh, how do you develop a practice? He talks a lot, a lot, a lot about the necessity, the necessity of having a personal practice of how it literally comes down to everything is having a practice. So no matter where you are on the path, whether you're starting it, whether you're deep into it, whether you're a seasoned meditator or a seasoned person on the spiritual journey, this conversation is going to be extremely valuable. So please, please, please dive in. And if you would, before it's done, please go to Spotify, iTunes, wherever you're listening to this and leave us a review. The podcast has grown and grown and grown. I think I said in an episode prior that we're now releasing one a week as opposed to two a week. One, because Uncivilized has blown the fuck up, thanks to you all. So uh, I am busier than ever running a company rather than just trying to get people to believe in a company. So thank you for that. Uh, and two, it just helps get the word out. And I know it's, it's conversations like this that are going to shift so many people, both men and women. Now, if you are a man and you consider yourself a nice guy, also... Take a listen to this. 
One of the things that I am most excited about as a coach and a teacher and someone who works with both men and women is my Kill the Nice Guy course. This is a six-week course that makes guys take a good, hard look at all the things that they're doing and not doing in order to please women, in order to please their parents, in order to please somebody other than themselves. This course has radically transformed so many men's lives. And truthfully, other than a tiny bit of, of, of marketing here, has outsold every other course that I have already. And it's only been out for a couple months. So if you were interested, if you feel like a nice guy or you know a nice guy, please check out manoncivilized.com forward slash kill the nice guy. Go. Okay. Without further ado, let's dive into this conversation. Please welcome Arjuna Dharmadas. Arjuna Dharmadas, welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. This is probably, what, seven years in the making? Uh, it's been some time since, since I've seen you and hugged you and, and gotten to sit in front of you as you taught or shared. Uh, so pleasure. Welcome, brother. Thank you so much for, for sharing your time and for, for coming in. Uh, I just said in the intro that you and your wife or partner were the owners of the uh, Mahadevi Ashram where I did the dark retreat. And so we are intimately linked, uh, despite our distance and despite uh, anything that's going on in the world. For people who don't know you or may not have a full grasp of who you are and what you do in the world, would you mind just sharing a bit of what you're up to now? Hmm. Well, the ashram was uh, from about 10 years ago to seven years ago. And since then, we've relocated to Italy and have opened the Inner Peace Sanctuary in Tuscany. So we're pretty much doing very similar things, including dark retreats over there, just that now we're in Europe. Fair, 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 fair. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I know the answer to it, but I'm, I think my audience is curious. Did you, since you were a little kid, always want to open an ashram? Like, how does one go from being a, a human to being like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to move to Guatemala and open an ashram. Can you walk <laughs> us through a little bit of that process? <laughs> you see, the first thing to mention is, is that this was not so much my decision, right? I mean, like many things in life, especially the good stuff, it's where we get out of the way, right? Where we don't like impose our will or something, uh, even though I'm sure there's great examples for that too. But for me, it was more of a vision of community at first. Mm -hmm. I remember being like a traveling hippie, some backpacker for years, living in Asia, studying yoga, spirituality, and, and harboring a vision of, living peacefully in nature with people that uh, share the vision. And uh, over the years, this refined itself to becoming uh, more an ashram and a school. After I basically felt like I had some qualification to, to put together offerings, the community turned into more of a school or ashram because I think because of some experience is that communities are very hard to maintain, right? Maybe you've, you've come across this before, especially communities without leadership. I think 95% of them fail very quickly. And uh, so gradually it became clearer that it's helpful if there's like someone guiding it benevolently. Mm. And that was the, the vision then. 
And in an ashram, that is often the case also traditionally, that there is some kind of what would it, vision keeper. Mm. <laughs> and so that became us. And then by no means just me. So it was definitely all of it was very much the, the two of us together. Yeah. And uh, we're just this, this very fortunate, complementary match of, of uh, very different strengths. And so when we came together, it kind of uh, enabled us to, to put this into the world. Mm. So the ashram grew out of community experiences and then kind of shaped up in the course of itself. It was a very, very basic uh, undertaking at first, like a rented venue. And uh, we didn't have a dark retreat at first. Uh, it was uh, very, very simple in Guatemala, which also, if you're wondering about the location, of course, that, that must seem pretty exotic to some people. But you see, we were traveling south from pretty much Canada, aiming for South America. And uh, having had heard about Guatemala as being a good place, it was certainly on the way. And then when we got there, we realized, oh, this is really quite something. And especially 10 years ago, things have changed a little, but 10 years ago, it was a bit of a, a wonderland of opportunity. There, there were a couple of retreat centers and uh, a bit of a vacuum for a proper yoga school. So. It was right time, right place for offering yoga. People already knew this is a place where you can find spiritual instruction or community. And so people started coming. And even though we arrived in the rainy season and it was actually very challenging at first, within a few months, we managed to get by. And then uh, once the main season came, it was it was very well received and people came and uh, within I think two or three years we moved into a, a, an even quieter location where uh, we, we also had the option to make some changes and shape it up physically the way we wanted to and that's where we also built the dark retreat and uh, that's what became Madhavi Ashram so mm. yeah was it us Pulling the strings, I, I, don't, I don't really feel that. Yeah. It was really more an unfolding that we got, got out of the way for. Mm. There's so much juice in what you said. Thank you. I, I would love to know two things. One, how did, you, how did you start? Did you guys just start teaching out of someone else's venue? Did you, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And I think this is important because I know, so a lot of my audience is in transition or they want to be in transition, Arjuna. They have this idea, they have this thought of like, well, maybe I can do X. And I think a lot of the challenges, they would show up to a place like the ashram and say, okay, until I can build this whole thing tomorrow and have it operating the way it is now, even though this is five, 10 years in, I can't start. So I'm really curious for you, what was day one like where you're like, okay, Arpita, we're doing this. And you're like, okay, cool. Now, what do, what, do, what, do we, what do we do first? What was the very first thing you did? And how did you cross that threshold from I have an idea to we just put flyers up and we're going for it? <laughs> it was quite magical. It's a, it's a lovely story to, to revisit because when we arrived in, in San Marcos at the time, uh, 
uh, I knew, I think, one or two people. I have actually a really old friend of mine had settled there the prior, previous year. And uh, the second day after arriving, someone told us, oh, there's this place available down the road. It has like five rooms and a little hall that could work for yoga. And there's a kitchen and a couple of bathrooms. It's super basic, but it's available. Mm. And it's cheap. <laughs> so <laughs> like, oh, that, that, that ticks a few boxes that would be important right now. And so we, we went and looked and, and sure enough, it was, mm. I don't want to say a ramshackle, but it was just, it was locally built and locally owned and uh, very, very basic. Nonetheless, it was not far from the lake. Mm. It uh, had all the facilities we desperately needed mm. and we could afford it so we, we actually agreed to rent this place right away. And honestly, this was such a pivotal moment. It cannot be overstated. It's, this was what enabled everything else. Uh, being guided to this village at this particular time, it, it's not that there was a lot of places like this. It's, you know, rarely do you come across a, a venue like this that is just available because it's just right. so full of potential. Gotta be lucky a little bit. And we were. Sure. But what helped was that we didn't arrive at the beginning of the main season, when you would want to start something like this, because then usually everything is taken. But we arrived at the beginning of the, the low season, the, rain, mm. the green season, as we later on called it, because as much as it is less popular because it gets rainy, most people had left. And I'm pretty sure someone had rented this place before. And when the rain started, they left too. So we basically got in when everybody else got out. And that was, that's what helped a lot. Okay. Yeah, and then within I think one week we gave the first class. So we spent a week to to put something together to really improvise what a yoga school should could look like in mm -hmm. a place that is incredibly beautiful in terms of nature, mm -hmm. but is also quite undeveloped. And uh, there was a lot of things missing that we didn't, there wasn't just a place where we can go and get furniture or anything like this. Sure. Uh, so we, we improvised a lot of things, spent one week decorating, cleaning, preparing, putting together some kind of schedule. And then, yeah, handing out flyers. I don't even know if, if, online was a thing yet we really started by putting posters and this is just 10 years ago but we still put yeah. posters on on a couple of black uh, boards yeah. and uh, gradually facebook became the medium uh, right. but at first it was very old school and there were not many people around mm. so it was very you know in the beginning you always have to kind of have some breath and some some uh, momentum some uh, conviction that is all that's getting keeping you going at first yeah and uh, for us that was a relatively short period thankfully i think after about a month it looked like this can work you know okay. because when the green season starts which is may uh, it takes about two months and then the summer is there, which is still quite rainy, but then people are coming because of summer vacations. Mm. And so by July, August, some people did come mm -hmm. and then it dropped off again for September, October, which is really the lowest of the, of the year. Uh, but uh, yeah, as the summer came, we realized this can work, even though it was very much improvised. Beautiful. Would you mind sharing how you felt or dealt with the juxtaposition between there's something coming through me 
this is there's inspiration there's i feel a connection to a higher power that's calling me to do this and i have to get my ass out there and start putting posters up which i can't just sit back and be like well god will provide or the divine will provide or i don't feel called to clean the floor today i feel called to meditate and channel what's above me how how do you how do you not draw the line but do, do you understand what i'm asking one of my challenges with the, the quote, spiritual community is the sentence, well, I just don't feel called to do that. And I'm like, well, I don't really feel called to, I didn't, especially in the beginning of starting my business, like I too just wanted to lie on a couch and channel money and, and potency and all the things, but it was like, get up, do some push-ups, go to the gym, eat something and start writing how do you walk that line or how do you, and if you would, if you had someone in front of you who was curious, what would you tell them to do about it? It's, it's a very good question. Um, because often I think maybe you've noticed that the mind often tries to polarize and simplify a complex situation into a black or white kind of choice, yeah. right? Yeah. It's one or the other. <laughs> and and over, over the years, I've just noticed more and more that it is never one or the other pretty much never it, it may seem that way sometimes for a while but uh, ultimately there is wishful thinking in such a process often where we think oh i'm i'm this great teacher now that that should be uh, respected and that should uh, be be uh, facilitated by others right mm -hmm. uh, when in actual fact the guidance especially when you just start the project can very well be oh oh it's quite dirty in the hall someone has to sweep that thing and mm -hmm. it, it might just be me even though i'm the teacher of the class right because mm -hmm. it's it's really not mutually exclusive at all the guidance can be towards the most menial things and you see for us especially as we were just the two of us and not some some bigger group of people we did everything ourselves and at first we couldn't cover the costs with, with teaching yoga and being all like clad in white and, and looking all holy. Uh, it, it Rather, we had to uh, clean the toilets. We had to make the food. Uh, and to make ends meet, we, we really improvised a lot. We, we I think we gave massages at the beginning. We even like Apita uh, baked bread. And uh, you know, people like German bread virtually anywhere. So we made some <laughs> German bread and... and that in the streets so we pulled all the stops out to to make that work because we did not have a bunch of money saved up this was the end of the saved up money we were yeah. down to not much and uh, had to make it work and sure that helps if you really have to right if you're mm. motivated if, if you're kind of comfortable and you actually do have some savings that you can roll with it's a different story for us mm. it was like no this is this is we, we, and of course it was aligned with what we really wanted to do there was this urge to to make this real mm. and there was this feedback loop of ah oh, this is what needs to be done right mm -hmm. and so what needs to be done it should not be hijacked by the mind saying oh this is all just the holy stuff but it's rather whatever needs to be done and not feeling too proud to to do some less pleasant chores yeah beautiful thank you for that i think it's it's also important for people to remember that in the beginning, you're taking your own trash out, you're mopping the floors, you're cleaning the toilets. And there's, there's a time when that's completely necessary. And then also a time to graduate from that. 
When you say, okay, we, this is working. We do have clients. We are making money. Now my best use isn't cleaning the toilet till midnight. It's writing out the next year's plan or it's, it's holding the vision and sharing the vision. Would you mind sharing, and we'll take a little bit of a left turn here. For people, especially men who are stuck in the logic of, okay, I have a 72-point to-do list today, but I don't feel this. I don't have contact with something bigger than myself or something moving through me. What are some of the ways that you engage with a higher, I don't know, I don't care how we define this, the divine, God, a higher power, inspiration, creativity, whatever we want to call it. What are some of the ways that you tap into that? And what are some of the ways that you've helped people who may be cut off from that tap into that? Mm. Well, honestly, there is only one thing that I can mention there, uh, even though it comes in many forms, but that is the practice. That is simply what practice does. As much as it is not the purpose of the practice to sit there brooding and making plans, that does happen. Of course, you want to meditate <laughs> all your mind does is making plans and weighing options but <laughs> that's not what i mean that's not the best mechanism of going about this even though it might very much appeal to the, to the masculine psyche to just use the meditation to actually think things out and make your plan um at first it may look this way but a much perhaps deeper way of approaching it is to give the practice some time to clear to clear the room, to clear the desk. You know, I, when we when we explain meditation, we, we often use this image of a desk that gets really cluttered, uh, which is the mind with all the things that go on in your mind. And then we think that um, that meditation perhaps means that you you clear it, you uh, you tidy up your desk, you put everything in order, you put this there and that there. And basically the image now means that instead of doing that in your meditation, you clear the entire desk. You basically start seeing the desk itself again, which mm. you might not have been seeing anymore because of all the clutter on top. No matter how well organized that clutter is, you don't see the desk because it's entirely covered with stuff. In the same way, our mind gets covered with all these plans and to-do lists and uh, pragmatic concerns and uh, the meditation is really to clear that away. And that doesn't mean that you actively sit there like, oh, think nothing. I should just be still. I am stillness. I am Shiva. <laughs> right? That doesn't really do anything. Yeah? And it's actually a, a pretty difficult uh, mm, endeavor to fully explain in meditation. It is very easy to try and take shortcuts and define it in some way that is incomplete. Like, you know, the masters, they say, that which is holy, don't speak of it. Right? Because even a clear desk is only a crutch here. And it is not me clearing anything. It is, <laughs> if, if we could describe it in any kind of way, maybe it may help to, to come back to uh, uh, Ramana Maharshi, right? one of the great saints of recent decades and centuries. And, and he basically say, said the, the method can be summed up in be still. Be still. And uh, he didn't talk about desks or clutter or a silent mind or anything in particular, but just to be still. And so the practice, whatever it is, and 
I'm not speaking, you know, just in terms of a silent meditation or, or yoga. This can be Tai Chi. This can be working out in the gym. It can be painting, drawing, dancing, whatever it is that, that gets you into the present moment. Whatever the, that it is that focuses you 100% here and now. Hmm. And different people will find that this is very different things for them. Right? You might listen to a teacher and they say one thing and you think this must be it. But no. Right? There, there is no path. You make the path as you walk. So everyone will find there are certain activities that are not really activities or that are not mere activities, but rather a tool that gets us into the present moment. For some people, it's climbing, like extreme things, especially for men. Often extreme sports, anything like that will be practiced because it brings us into the present moment without alternative, like basically blink and you die. And this immediacy, this inescapable focus, that's, uh, I guess, a mechanism that, that plays a role in meditation, no matter if you sit still or not. And so whatever it is at all, the important thing, and people said that, you know, there's one problem with yoga. You have to do it. <laughs> and the same goes for any practice, you know. It is lovely to talk about it all day. But unless you do it, you will not benefit from it at all. And so the practice, whatever is anybody's practice, it needs to be done. It will clear the desk magically. It will create space for the vision to unfold. Beautiful. Thank you for that. All right, folks, I hope you're loving this conversation. I went back and listened to it a second time because there were so many gems. Now, you heard me talk about in the beginning, killing the nice guy. You guys, this course has blown up. My email is, is literally every morning. I have 20 to 30 messages now from guys saying, hey, I think I'm a nice guy. What do I do? So if you consider yourself a nice guy, if you're having challenges in relationship, if you're having challenges with boundaries, if you're having challenges with having a direction in your life, please go to manuncivilized.com forward slash kill the nice guy. All right, back to Arjuna. Arjuna, would you be open to sharing a bit of your own personal practice or what you do personally to connect? It has changed a lot. And yeah. As I said, there isn't one path to follow. And it's very easy to think in spirituality. Let me see, just show me a path that I like and I'll follow this or I'll follow a teacher, I'll follow a tradition. It's tempting. It's very tempting. But uh, with some time and patience we probably realize most people do that there is an individual path it's sometimes compared to a mountain that you can climb a mountain from so many different sides and every route you take will of course be different you come through different perhaps landscapes and you might have a machete on you or not but you make your way and you cannot actually take somebody else's path but everyone is individual so for me if I don't often talk about the personal practice because even though it seems to do something for me, that doesn't mean someone can follow the same path. Yeah? So that being said, I started off with silent sitting meditation within the Buddhist tradition with Vipassana retreats over 20 years ago. And I still do silent sitting meditation. There's certainly been times when I didn't sit as much. It does come and go. There is more of, a, of a, an intuitive element to it when that is needed, right? There's a, this huge, big question about formalized practice. 
like some um, great teachers are saying, oh, formal practice is, is a smokescreen. It's just, uh, it cannot do anything, right? And you're like, what, what do you mean? Formal, wow. you know, other people, it's the most important thing to have a formalized practice. So I did start from it. I still do it. That being said, in between, I've gotten into yoga. I've done a whole lot of that. And especially the asana practice has been a focus point for years. We still teach asana, hatha yoga, traditional, original, the way yoga was a thousand years ago, right? As opposed to much of the modern, more gymnastic, athletic, physical stuff. Uh, like our yoga is actually a, a meditation, basically. So uh, if I do asana practice, it is very still. There's no flowing. There is uh, not much movement. Uh, other than going from one pose in, into the next, there's a lot of uh, self-awareness, stillness. Uh, so this like ancient idea that you find described in the yogic scriptures. Mm. So there is all of that that has been a practice that still is to some degree. And then there's this whole other branch or field, which is bhakti, which is uh, bhakti yoga. Basically, the yoga that the, the, the Indians practice almost exclusively and have been for centuries. And that has not much to do with asana and not much to do with silent meditation, but it is rather the devotional practice of chanting mantras with music, without music, often involving temples or altars and uh, a lot of things that the, the Western mind doesn't easily relate to. Yeah, that we could easily dismiss or judge as, I don't know, religious ritual or whatever else, right? But interestingly, even before I got into proper hatha yoga, I was exposed to mantras. I loved them. I started singing them. Eventually, I learned some instruments. And uh, that practice has become arguably the most central, amazingly. Not by choice, but just by observing what is it that brings me into the present moment that really coagulates awareness into a, a singularity, if you will? And so it's between silent sitting and mantra chanting where I'm most at home by now. Mm, beautiful. I really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, I remember an, an interview with David Goggins, if you know him, he's quite the the, the figure in the sort of extreme male world. He's an ex-Navy SEAL, does all of these crazy endurance races. He's his like pull up re world records, like that kind of stuff, you know? And, and someone asks, what's your morning routine? It doesn't fucking matter what my morning routine is. My morning routine is irrelevant. All that matters is that I have one and that you have one and that yours is yours. But I, I appreciate you bringing the mix of flavor in. And I think even the permission because so many men are logical and are like, bro, just tell me the three steps to being present and I'll do them every day or I'll do them for like a week until I get bored and then ask someone else, what are your three steps to getting there? So I love that it is a mix of silent meditation and the proper way of yoga uh, and also bhakti. Would, would you mind defining bhakti for people who don't understand truly what that means? You see, they say if, if you understand bhakti there is no need to describe it and if, you don't, <laughs> if you don't understand bhakti there's no way to describe it <laughs> but that being said yeah that being said. it means devotion 
And in the West, that immediately raises red flags. Like, what do you mean? Like, what blind devotion to what and why and right. what the hell? And so a devotion, uh, I think it's important, first of all, to who, right? Yeah. It is not to me or you. It's not to another person necessarily, right. uh, but rather to perhaps consciousness in some way, shape or form, whichever way you see that. And the question is, do we have it in in, in some way already do we understand uh, or what is our relationship with consciousness if so yeah it's a good a good contemplation for each and every one of us mm-hmm. when someone says consciousness what's your relationship with it that's a very important question to ask ourselves and often when we sit with that question for a while when we marinate in that we realize hmm i do believe consciousness is kind of a a backbone of reality like mm-hmm. that uh, Mm, what we could call spirit or even God is ultimately just uh, another word for consciousness. The Buddhists, for instance, see it that way. And uh, the question now is, if we were to come face to face with consciousness itself, on even like say a universal level, whatever that might mean, like, yeah, you could say, what if we were to meet God, if we were to meet something really sublime and uh, extraordinary, on the level of consciousness, what would be our natural reaction? What would likely be our um, attitude or response to that experience? That's devotion. Because what other reaction could we possibly have? We would have to recognize, oh, wow, the sum total of reality is somehow being perceived here. And uh, we would feel devotional about it. So how we get there is the big question. And there's a million ways. Beautiful. Arjuna, I imagine you have an interesting perspective and view into the spiritual community. I would love if you would share, uh, and I'm going to preface this at the end. I'll I'll come back and, and tell you why I'm asking the question of how people discern from false idols, false gurus, gurus themselves, and sort of manipulation in that community and saying, wow, I really appreciate what this guy says. I appreciate all that he's saying. It feels good in my body. It feels like it's true. I'm open to devoting myself to the practice. How do people differentiate between the two? And the reason I said I'll preface this is uh, a good buddy of mine, Jeremy Goldberg, just had a podcast interview come out with a woman named Jade Electra, who was deeply involved with a very, very toxic, quote, spiritual leader who has done enormous damage to a number of people, uh, all in the name of truth and light and et cetera. So how do new seekers or early seekers or people who may be slightly naive, and I'm not using that word derogatorily, navigate the spiritual world and try to avoid some of the really horrible fucking humans out there. Mm. That is such an important topic, actually. It's, it's um, as soon as you spend a bit of time in the spiritual scene, you realize it's, it's rife with that kind of thing. And that is not even because the spiritual realm attracts con people necessarily. That's not even the mechanism here. It's more that, when we are on the path for a while, sooner or later, we develop a spiritual ego. Mm-hmm. 
because our ego is not easily just giving in when we start working on ourselves and going within it's not that eventually or after you know ideally two weeks the ego is like okay i give up i'm out of here and there you are <laughs> in your shining persona as a holy person right it's just not like that much more likely and everywhere really and i have personal experience with this the the, the way it feels and how it happens yeah. is that the old school ego becomes a spiritual ego and mm-hmm. there's memes about it it's really like a standard process and it leads to both uh, the, the idea that you have that you know something and uh, that you need to share it and also a certain confidence that is perhaps brittle and superficial but that appeals to others and so a student, a practitioner, relatively quickly gets to the point of wanting to teach and wanting to share and lead and whatever else. And that's, um, it's really unfortunate. It's, um, there's this book, what is it called? Um, Something with spiritual materialism. Mm -hmm. And it kind of defines this process very well. So I think it's, it should be required reading for anyone on the path because it's, it's something many of us are blindsided for. So the result is tons of communities are led by mostly a spiritual ego. Mm -hmm. And um, those people might not necessarily have bad intentions at first, but as soon as people start following you and idealizing you and perhaps even making excuses for you, you start getting corrupted by this. Just like, you know, total power corrupts totally. When power arises, few of us are ready for this. We don't see it coming. We don't know what it does to us. And that is, I think, often what happens in those communities. They might have been beautiful and and, uh, legit and authentic at first, but the power structures that are creeping in are to be reckoned with and are very hard to keep in check for both sides, be it the leaders or the followers. Uh, so unfortunately, we often get uh, inquiries from our students, like, what about this community or that? Can you can you tell me, is that a good idea? Should I go there to study some more? Uh, and I mean, what, what else would we do than research them if we don't know them already? You can find quite a lot of uh, feedback and, and um, evaluations online. And uh, often it's not hard to get some idea of uh, how much... Uh, can you trust them? What kind of abuse is already there? And uh, what do people say about it? So if we don't know them already, we also just do this and then pass on. Yeah? But generally, mm, we all seek guidance from someone who knows. Of course, that would be ideal, right? A lot of people that are interested in spirituality would be, I would just like to have a teacher that I can trust. And often even like that would make decisions for me because they know better than I do, right? And we got to be careful with this. Um, there is so much mm, wisdom and, and guidance available, but uh, to hand over our personal responsibility to someone else is usually quite treacherous. And I mean, this is not news. We, we know this, right. but uh, it's perhaps one of the pitfalls of devotion. That we, when we recognize some some spark of spirit in someone, we do fall into devotion to them, and it's blind because, well, we don't actually know, do we? And we just follow them because the mind kind of defaults to that kind of behavior, and not for everyone. Huh? Other people would be like, "No, I will never follow anybody." 
and uh, that has its own challenges. <laughs> um, but ultimately, it's between those two. Either we, we devote ourselves too easily or not easily enough. It's a spectrum like virtually anything. Yeah, You want to basically um, stay connected to, to spirit, to that right. true consciousness without just handing over your um, sovereignty to a, mm. a random person that looks pretty holy. Thank you. I think it's a really important thing to say. I also want to flip the coin on the question and ask you personally, how have you navigated not becoming like Arjuna the Enlightened, who, you know, there's a $25,000 entry fee to kiss his feet and then have him on an interview. How have you kept that spiritual ego in check? Or is it just having our pizza around to be like, nope, sit down, make some dinner. You're not, you're not as big as you think you are. Okay, carry on. How have you navigated the other side of that question? I do think in a relationship is an amazing tool for this. Like, uh, <laughs> I remember, um, what's his name? Uh, Norman Allen, I think he brought uh, Ashtanga to the West. And in this one documentary, someone asked him, like, are you enlightened? And he's like, ask my wife. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's it's amazing what a a proper a really wonderful relationship can do for that to really keep each other in check and to uh really uh feedback and mirror each other and Mm. all the time uh, without having to keep up any kind of appearance or yeah so that is a big factor yeah we um then of course, I mean, we we see it in ourselves. It's it's not that it's very rare that we come to the conclusion. Oh, I really am enlightened. I really right. wow. I'm like I'm I'm there. I've done it. Awesome. Right. Uh, most of the time, we realize oh, we're not. We have a lot of and as they say, when you think you're enlightened, you're definitely not. Right. <laughs> so uh, most of us know that far from it. So we may override this for whatever business reasons or or self-importance but uh, as long as we still realize there is no mm, justification to to inflate that spiritual ego into something greater than we seem to be uh, it's it's quite important to to say so and i guess Mm. it helps to remind ourselves and the students to some degree it helps to open with this like we always open courses and retreats, etc., with the literal sentence, we are not some, we're not claiming to be some enlightened masters of the universe. It's it's simply not what we appear to be, want to be, uh, try to pass as, or anything like this. And um that helps. Right. So Cultivating humility is not an easy thing. I personally, have, I, I don't know if I've cultivated enough humility. Is there ever enough humility? Of course. I mean, how do you even cultivate something like humility? It's even, I found it quite challenging to, to distinguish, to tell apart humility from insecurity, right? Like when you're, right. when we want to be humble, we might just turn out to be quite insecure. <laughs> and, uh, that's one of the great things that that masters demonstrate and and, uh, share with us and show us that there is great confidence and great humility in the same person 
at the same time. And the confidence doesn't mean they know something. That's the fascinating thing. Like one of my favorite saints, Nim Karoli Baba, he, when people asked him about Kundalini or, or other yogic subjects, he would always say, oh, you go to this other teacher. They know those things. I only know two things, mm. Ra and Ma. And what he meant with that is that Rama is, of course, one of the great Indian gods. And so he said, oh, I don't know those things. I just know God. And that's it's still a pretty big statement to say. So few people would say they know God, but it is a good reminder how the confidence is not so much in our knowledge or our convictions, but rather perhaps the connection that we that we feel inside to that consciousness. Yeah. Thank you. Great answer. I really appreciate this. Arjuna, I get a lot of men who are coming out of the logic, ego, conventional, I just want to have the seven-figure income, the house, the 2.5 kids, the car, and, and I'm looking for something deeper. I'm looking for something more connected. And I was raised in one of the Western Abrahamic religions, and I'm still pissed. I'm still pissed I had to go to Sunday school. I'm still pissed that my gay friends now can't get into heaven, whatever. They're, they're pissed about some wounding that they've had from Catholicism, Christianity, whatever it may be. How do you help guide people across the threshold into something that works for them and, and also honors the resistance that like, I get where you're coming from and there's still this whole other side. I get this question all the time. So I'm really curious how you would address it. I found there is really only one cure to that. And that is practice in the sense that as much as there is a lot to teach, be it in yoga or other spiritual traditions, the teachings are not worth nearly as much as the practice, obviously. Mm -hmm. So in all our courses and retreats, the focus is on the practice. And I know we don't want to hear this. I know the ego is not interested and we'd much rather, you know, how, uh, how did this go? Uh, people always would want the explanation of heaven over heaven itself or something like that, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we'd rather be explained how it all is and then we understand it with the mind because that seems reasonably safe. And that's lovely. But another thing we always open courses with is that we are not here to replace whatever beliefs you hold with some beliefs that we hold or that we condone and that we now switch out for the old mm -hmm. beliefs. That is no solution whatsoever. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, if anything, we want to undo the beliefs themselves. And that can mean whatever beliefs result from our trauma, right? And actually what you, what you refer to there is trauma. And it might be somewhat uncomfortable for a man to realize I actually have trauma, right? A lot of men don't see it that way. Sure. We often, sadly, we associate trauma with something, or maybe more likely we associate it with women, because sadly, women suffer a lot of trauma. But that does not mean that men don't. It's perhaps a different kind of trauma in many cases. But especially if you say people that grew up in an Abrahamic religion, and there was ritual and dogma and God knows, that is actually a form of trauma, if we like it or not. And it may take years to overcome, obviously. It may take reprogramming or at least deprogramming one or the other uh, and um, 
we've seen some beautiful examples of this as we uh, had many students of so many different backgrounds that uh, would sometimes come and say, oh yeah, I grew up uh, typically in a, in a pretty conservative Christian environment. And uh, fantastically, to me who didn't actually grow up in such an environment, they found a lot of resolution through devotional practice. Mm. As much as that sometimes was really weird at first, mm. like what mantra chanting, we just have no concept, right? We don't understand it. And we, we feel like we need to understand before we do something. <laughs> if there is enough momentum in it, which was the case and is the case for especially kirtan practice, where, you know, ecstatic chanting, where there is music and a lot of energy and a lot of um, kind of group dynamic, uh, it kind of suspends that nagging mind that constantly like, let me understand this. I'm not going to sing something I don't understand. This kind of thing that's going on otherwise. It suspends that automatically, magically. And it leads us into a kind of present moment experience that resolves trauma, that allows us to face it perhaps, which can be difficult, right? This can lead to tears and breakdowns ultimately. But it's a mechanism that, that allows us to overcome it. And we've, if we like it or not, we've got to find some mechanism to overcome that trauma, whatever kind of trauma it is. Often it involves revisiting it and we may not be ready until we are, but it's necessary. So again, finding a practice, doing it regularly, committing to it, working up the discipline. You see the great masters, they often were not doing a formalized practice, but not because it's not necessary, but because they didn't need it anymore, right? For most of us, that is crucial. And the, the key is not what you do, but that you do it, whatever it is. So to, to look for a path in a way is justified because it allows us to explore different practices and not just for a minute, right? It's tempting to like try something once, it doesn't click, we move on uh, and we go through this like spiritual supermarket having tried it all and nothing works because we didn't give things a proper chance. Beautiful. And whatever it is that we do, there is a certain degree of, of surrender involved. Like a practice is really only as good as you can surrender to it. Mm. And not just try and stay in control with your mind, you doing the practice, you know, I am doing my meditation, but rather <laughs> being meditation, being yoga, being Tai Chi, to actually let this be all there is in this moment climbing yeah, anything but it's got to be all consuming to really have a transformative power but that's what does it slowly slowly and the, one of the first things we always say is that that we need to we will have to there is no choice but we have to develop patience because it does does not happen overnight. Anyone that promises you the world, the spiritual illumination by next Wednesday, be, be, be very careful. It isn't powerful breakthroughs, but this is not something you need to look for and, and kind of um, mm, seek out as the only or the best option. Usually, the more intense the practice, the greater the risk as well. And most transformation is slow, has its own pace, and we cannot really speed it up at will. Beautiful. That, that's a great segue into 
I'm curious of your thoughts on the rapid rise and proliferation of plant medicine, which to me feels like it's popular because it is the shortcut, right? I can meditate for five years. I can do yoga for five years, or I can go away this weekend and from 6 p.m. till midnight, dance with God, and then I can be back in my bed Sunday morning, eating pancakes, watching Netflix, and a tiny bit more enlightened. So would, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. <laughs> I imagine there's a couple. <laughs> yeah, this comes up in every course, of course, sooner or later, and you can see how people's minds are already working this way. Sure. Uh, wow, this seems like a lot of work and a lot of patience and a lot of time. Maybe instead of all this yoga meditation, can't I just like drink some ayahuasca and be done with this? Right. By next Wednesday is usually the time frame that we would you know, like. Um, uh, if, if only I could tell you, yes, that is the solution. You can avoid all of this work and all of this hardship and all of this confronting of your demons and your shadow and your and all this practice, holy God, and the pain in the knees and the back by drinking the ayahuasca. I cannot say that, of course, I can't. And that is perhaps the reason why you won't really find a great spiritual master that is that is a great spiritual master because they drank a lot of ayahuasca mm -hmm. it, i haven't met one i mean what do i know perhaps they are hiding in the amazon and you just have to find them but uh, this is uh, i don't want to go too much into the field of opinion here right my opinion on this is, is irrelevant but if you you so Living, living in Guatemala does expose you to a lot of plant medicine. It's very common. And it, uh, it seems to serve people to some degree for a while. But after years there, it hasn't really happened even once that someone appeared to be a great master of anything after drinking a certain amount of plant medicine or smoking or whatever else, it doesn't seem to have that effect, but rather someone who has done a lot of it for mm. the most part. It's just a tendency, which means that is the likeliest that will happen. And there might be exceptions to this, but the likeliest is that we're kind of flustered, scattered, unfocused, maybe confused, ungrounded, that we find it quite difficult to relate to the let's call it the physical world. We sometimes like to call it the unreal world, right? There's this whole discussion, like how real is the world? Is this manifestation just Maya and illusion? Or is it, yeah, but the point being, the more time we spend in these other realms, the more we need integration into this world. If we have an interest to live here, integration is the key. And that perhaps is the greatest challenge with plant medicine, that yes, it can be powerful and transformative, but it is only as powerful and potent as the integration that follows or that accompanies it. And that brings up both the guides in the ceremony itself and whatever environment you then go back to afterwards. And often it can take months and years to properly integrate such an experience. Um, I re remember some powerful plant experiences from years ago. Yes, they can be helpful. But uh, a lot of people have a tendency to just want to do more and more of 
this thinking that is now the solution and then they don't need to do practice. And that I believe is treacherous. The practice can help with integration. So I'm not saying don't ever do plant medicine, sure. but to have an environment, a, a framework around you, people you trust that can facilitate and support your integration is the key. Mm. And it's your whole plant medicine journey is only as good as your integrative framework. If you have that, if you have the intuition, the sensitivity to know what you need for integration, how long it may take for each individual experience. I wouldn't say it's useless or it should be avoided under all circumstances, but that is very, very rare, right? So I think the risks outweigh the benefits in most cases. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, I believe it's this kind of conversation that needs to accompany the rapid rise and proliferation of plant medicine that people don't realize one, how potent it may be, but two, I, I talk a lot, I talk about it a lot like exercise, that if you went away for six hours and did two years worth of exercise and then came home on Monday and we're back to eating McDonald's and sitting around, it's, it's sure it's a peak experience, but you're not going to carry it with you. And that would, on an exercise front, it would be quite dangerous You've, you've dosed your system with too high of a dose than you would rather than titrating it out. You know, let's work out three days a week for the next two years and see what happens as opposed to cramming it all into one weekend. So I, I appreciate the sensitivity of the answer as well as the honesty of the answer. Yeah, Arjuna, did, go ahead, please, yeah, please. If I can add one more thing. Um, sure. Acceleration is such a great challenge. I just want to reiterate this. It is so understandable that we'd like to go, go at the fastest pace possible. And we'd like, right. we, we feel that we're ready for transformation. We're ready to let go of insecurities and fears and imperfections. And we're, we're so willing to do what it takes if only we can get quick results, right? right. It is so understandable. I've been there. And especially peak experiences are, for many of us, what seems to be, the way to do it, right? Be it a great opening of consciousness in your meditation, or be it some mushrooms or some peyote, right? And those things can perhaps more reliably bring about, as you say, a peak experience. However, spiritual teachers of great magnitude, like I remember Aryashanti said this at one point, they warn against running after peak experiences. Mm -hmm. And over the years, I've come to appreciate and understand this more and more. And it's almost pointless to even talk about it because I know someone who just begins on the path is going to dismiss this right now. Mm -hmm. And yet, sooner or later, we recognize that peak experiences are just what they are, just like any other moment. They appear when the conditions, when the moment is right for them. And to concern ourselves with them, to try and bring them about, to crave them, to work towards them is completely pointless. It, it is completely pointless. And in this way, it is a bit of a, no, I don't want to call it cheating because that would be a judgment, but it is the mind easily jumps on quick solutions and plants plant medicine seems to be one right 
right? So as long as we can mm, let go of the outcome, right? We can do virtually anything, but this is um, the core of it, that we don't have a particular agenda, a particular mm, expectation, but we can actually meet every single moment exactly how it is. Mm. And when we do that, big experiences naturally come our yeah. way. Yeah. And then they end. And right. that's actually another important thing to realize. A peak experience doesn't mean that you're now forever enlightened. It literally, like any other moment, it comes and goes. Mm. Like we fly high for a moment and then it's over. And that's also something to reckon with and to integrate. Mm. Beautiful. I, I don't know if you remember this, but I asked you, uh, we did a, we were sitting around the table. I think you and our pizza had just returned from a trip after the dark. I did the dark retreat and I asked you, how do people hold on to or continue the decisions that they've made in peak experiences like a dark retreat or in a workshop or in something that's, you know, I, I've decided to make a profound shift. How do people actually live that shift out? And your answer to me was, they don't. <laughs> so That's what I, I wanted to say right yeah. now. <laughs> I've ever said, so I wish you luck. And I, I believe what you're saying is they don't without a practice. It's not just a one-shot deal of like, okay, cool. Yay, I'm, I, I felt the thing and now it's here forever. So I, I appreciate the honesty of that answer. I think it would be a disservice uh, to not ask you this in this sort of last few minutes we have left. And I know this is super fucking loaded and I'm not asking you for a geopolitical explanation, but I'm curious of what your lens has been over the past two years of watching so much change in the world and watching what feels like a mirror being held up to a lot of people, but a lot of people also avoiding that mirror or a lot of openness in society, and yet a lot of contraction and almost and tyranny, uh, especially now that we're watching Russia and Ukraine have their little dance and you guys are in Europe. Do you have a sense from a different perspective perhaps than, than other people's or a thought of what is going on in the world on a bigger scheme, if that question makes sense? Hmm. What is going on in the world? That's a small little question right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we got two minutes left. You wouldn't mind just diving into that one. Thanks. <laughs> right. What is going on in the world? Honestly, there's always something going on in the world. You know, the reality of war is not new. There's a dozen wars going on and has been for decades. Sure. Right? It's just a little bit closer to home, at least for the Europeans. And uh, be it COVID, it's, it was uh, there were people warning against it for years and years that this was uh, something we were blindsided for. And uh, in this way, there's always going to be something going on like this. Mm. You see, involving ourselves in it basically gets us entangled more in the world. It will mean that the world with those things takes up more real estate in our mind. And if we want to do that, if we want to perhaps uh, help those that are affected, or if we even want to, I don't know, fight a just fight, thinking that we can, that is all good and well. If, if that is our calling, someone, you know, a lot of people are doing this. That's why those things happen. But uh, the question is priorities, ultimately. Mm -hmm. 
do we really want to fight those worldly fights in whatever capacity? Or do we want to perhaps approach the, the ultimate frontier, which is within, right? And then, of course, a lot of people have, have uh, taken the opportunity of COVID of actually going within, of actually, while staying home, using the time for study and practice, which was a fantastic way of dealing with it, if you ask me, right? And um, sure, we are all blessed if we're not in a, in a war zone, if we're not affected personally. And uh, anyone who, out of practice or whatever other inspiration, feels the call to support and help and reach out and, and, and uh, become an activist or, or um, a fundraiser, all of that, that is a very uh, great karma yoga. In, in India, uh, the yoga of, of action, karma yoga, it doesn't necessarily just mean uh, scrubbing the floors. It means to align your action with your highest potential through actually the, the agency of intuition. So to, to check into ourselves through practice, what needs to be done right now? And that can be anything, including as in the traditional Indian teaching, fighting a war. That is uh, the entire story of the Bhagavad Gita, arguably greatest or most prominent Indian scripture. So the teaching of it is nothing more than what you do is not really important as long as it is what needs to be done. So if I can say anything to the situation of the world is that we are called to always do what needs to be done. If that means to go out there, and engage with the world, or if that means to go within, or if it means to balance the two, if that means to have a family or to be a, a renunciant that just drops everything and retreats into a cave, there is a full spectrum and it's a multidimensional spectrum of what that could entail. But to connect through the practice and follow the guidance of this moment, am I supposed to sit quietly? Am I supposed to do something in the unreal world? Am I supposed to study? Am I supposed to make love? It could be anything at all. And it shouldn't even, ideally, this should not have to go through the filter of the mind that you know groups things into good and bad things, right and wrong things. But it is what needs to be done. And that is a pretty... A teaching that doesn't easily get understood properly, right? That might need years to fully grasp. And that is why the Bhagavad Gita gets studied for lifetimes by people. Right, right. But ultimately, it is a journey towards who we are, recognizing our ultimate nature. And then as a consequence of that, seeing our place in the world, unfolding the purpose of our existence, as a function of who we are. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you for coming on. Thank you for your time. And always thank you just for the very, very pivotal role that you played in my life and my journey and continue to play. So brother, I, I appreciate you. I love you. I'm so grateful for you. And especially for just having you come on and share sure. your time with my audience. Uh, give your woman a big hug for me. And I look forward to visiting you guys soon enough. I'm saying it here. I've, I've told my own partner that at my 49th year in, in three years, I'm going to do 49 days in the dark and revisit it. So I will be seeing you for sure 
uh, in a couple of years, but hopefully before then too. Thank you, Arjuna. Thank you for having me. This is Trevor Bohm signing off on another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us a share. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting a hold of my book, Man Uncivilized, whether you're a man or a woman, please go to www.manuncivilized.com 